Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Each week, we explore a biblical passage or topic, offering insight and application, and seeking to point us to hope and direction for our lives. We also have some interactive questions available for individual reflection or for small groups. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Today, we are in part two of the story of the younger son found in the third parable in Luke chapter 15. This chapter begins with Jesus sitting and eating with various sinners and tax collectors while the Pharisees looked on and grumbled to themselves because Jesus was willing to spend time with and talk to such sinners. Verse 3 tells us, So Jesus spoke this parable unto them. The parable is not one, but a series of three stories, each one telling or revealing something as to how God himself sees these sinners and tax collectors, and for that matter, the Pharisees as well. In fact, all of Israel, his chosen people, the people of the Abrahamic covenant. Last week, we started the story of a certain man who had two sons. The story told us of the younger son who demanded that the father give him his portion of his inheritance early, a highly unusual request that bore insult and dishonor upon the father. The father surprisingly complied with the request and granted both of his sons their inheritance. The younger son promptly converted his wealth into cash and departed for a far country where he quickly spent it all through reckless living. At that point, a severe famine kicked in and the younger son found himself hungry and destitute. His next move was to unite himself to a Gentile who sent him into his fields to feed swine. He also assumed that or figured his new friends would perhaps offer some support to him, but none did. So in the fields feeding pigs, the son realizes his situation is getting serious and soon he will perish. Jesus tells us that it was then that he came to his senses and developed a plan for his survival. The son reasoned how his father's servants had food to spare, so he will return home say the right things, and demand that his father employ him as a hired servant. That way, he could begin to earn some income and start to slowly restore the wealth he lost. Hopefully, then, he could also be regarded with some degree of honor in the community and build that back. We know he was strictly motivated by physical hunger and better physical prospects because that's what he said to himself in his soliloquy, the literary device where the actor is speaking to himself. Luke fifteen seventeen it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So <clears throat> the son 
returns with a three-part speech prepared. Returning was indeed a bit risky, since he very well could be rejected by the community and by his father. He was all set to communicate, though, his three things. I have sinned against heaven and before you, number one. Two, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And three, make me like one of your hired servants. So first, he's admitting that he sinned. Second, he's acknowledging his actions have brought dishonor to the father, and he is now not worthy to be called his son. And third, make me like one of your hired servants. Now, we've pointed out as we go through this story how the Pharisees might be talking to themselves and reacting. And so the Pharisees at this point in the story would view this as right and good. This is the first thing they can agree with in the story. This son is going to come back and confess and grovel and show remorse, and then maybe it'll work out. The Pharisees might say, hey, we think we know how this will end. Boy, this story was outrageous at first, but he totally dishonored his father and everything else, but he went into the far country. He got what he deserves. He's been totally humiliated. He's coming back. He's groveling. He's pathetic. And then perhaps we can throw him a little mercy. Ah, we get it now. This is going to turn out okay. This story is turning out to be good. We get it. Now, remember the question we ended with last time is, do you think the younger son here has truly repented? Does his plan indicate repentance on his part? And there's two possible answers, right? Yes or no. Many, many people, in fact, probably the majority of commentaries, etc., would say yes, uh, he's repented. And I'm choos choosing to make a, a leading spokesperson of this to be a famous preacher named John MacArthur. He had written, he has written a book on this whole parable uh, called the, the Prodigal Son, An Astonishing Study of the Parable Jesus Told to Unveil God's Grace for You. I just want to point out a few statements from that book that might help our understanding here. He said, quote, You can see evidence of genuine repentance in the prodigal's very first thoughts after he finally came to himself. Notice that his attitude toward his father was different. His willingness to acknowledge his own sin was brand new. His will was changed, and he was a markedly different man from the inside out. So I have to stop and ask some thoughts here as he says this. I think, well, why? What has prompted all this change in the younger son? And, you know, from his own mind, we can see the story tells us exactly what is he, he is thinking in the soliloquy. He's saying, I'm sitting here perishing with hunger while in my father's house the servants have bread to spare. His attitude toward his father isn't seen as any different at all. He doesn't say anything about how he might miss him or love him or how he must have hurt him. His willingness to acknowledge sin is, is new, that's true, but it is, sure seems like it's a means to an end here to get something. His will was changed. No, he tried to get out of hunger and doom by working for the Gentile. And now that that's not working out, he's trying to get out in a different way. And he's shrewd, which isn't a bad thing physically or horizontally. But he's not a markedly different man. He's a shrewd man. In fact, at the beginning of our story, he made a demand on his father so he could leave. Give me my inheritance. Now he plans on making a demand on his father so he can return and stay. So I have to respectfully disagree with Mr. MacArthur on this assessment. One more quote from him as he's telling, uh, commenting on this story. He says, quote, quote, I love how the prodigal rehearsed how best to verbalize his repentance. 
It proves that when he said he was taking responsibility for his own wrongdoing, he meant it. He had thought this thing through. He had no expectations, asked for no special privileges, made no demands. He wasn't negotiating terms of surrender. He fully and unconditionally relinquished all his rights. He simply confessed his sins, threw himself on his father's mercy, and begged to be made the lowest of servants. Well, unfortunately, again, there are just some things stated here that are not accurate. He is making demands. Mr. MacArthur said he made no demands, but he is. He's saying, make me a hired servant. Now, that's not a request, and he's not offering anything in exchange or, or as leverage, just a demand. Demand that works out in his interest and his favor. And he's not willing to be made the lowest of servants, as Mr. MacArthur said. The lowest of servants were the house servants who were not paid. They stayed in the house, lived in the servant quarters, and their payment was their room and board and the security. No, the younger son says, make me one of your hired servants. These are like day laborers who come and go, they earn a wage, and is of a definite higher status than a house servant. So he's not asking or begging to be made the lower servants. Yes, he does make demands. And therefore, he did have some expectations and things he was hoping for here. And he's not unconditionally relinquishing. He's actually maintaining control here through this, as he is the one making the demand. So does this indicate repentance in the Son? Repentance would, if it did, would need to mean that you humble yourself and confess your sin and own your shame and face the Father whom you have sinned against. And then after this, you can hope, even as... MacArthur even said uh, in a different quote I didn't read, but then you can hope for some measure of acceptance. But there's a significant problem if this is repentance, or yes, he has repented. Because how does Jesus describe repentance in the first two parables that led up to the third one? In fact, all three are seen as one unit. Repentance is being found. The sheep, the the one from the 99, and the coin. They didn't do anything in the stories to be found, they were found. They were simply found. In fact, in this parable, the term repentance is not even used, like it was used in the other two parables. So how is the younger son found in our story at this point? You see, everything is starting within himself. His plan is coming to his senses. To say he is repentant is not really in step with the context and the flow of the three stories as one. In fact, I was sharing this point with a believer once. We were talking about this. Uh, who had been saved for many years, I was surprised, because they got a little agitated. And they said, hey, but the son did rise up. I mean, he did do that. He did actually, you know, get out of bed and go. And he was thinking, I need to work in order to eat. So this is good. To this believer, this was good. And, and it is, horizontally. Horizontally and physically thinking, that's very good. It's thinking, however, just like the Pharisees in the spiritual realm. So the question again, does this indicate repentance on the Son? And I am going would suggest to you, no, it does not. He is indeed going to repent. We're going to see that very soon, but it's not right here. Why? Well, for one, he's not thinking in relational terms at all. He doesn't talk about how he misses his father. He has no regret for the hurt that he caused. He doesn't, uh, he seems even unaware of it, very self-absorbed. He does not think in terms of asking for forgiveness. That isn't even on the horizon at all. His plan makes a demand. 
That's in his self-interest, not the father's. In fact, we know this because it's right in his soliloquy. He wants food and survival. The proposal that he makes indicates that while he desires the father's house, he does not understand the father's heart. I'll say that again. Though he desires the father's house, he does not understand the father's heart. This is something that I fear is true of many of us. The remedy to that is to learn the Father's heart and let that compel us. His repentance is similar to Saul's repentance. In a story in the Old Testament, Saul was, uh, was the king, and uh, he was wrong. And what he, that he did something, the Lord, the Lord had asked him to do something he didn't completely obey and do what the Lord had communicated, and the prophet Samuel was sent to him to rebuke Saul and bring that out, that he did not truly, really obey. And Saul tried to defend himself. Well, yeah, I kind of did, but I was listening to the needs of the, the wants of the people. And Saul, then after they talked about it, wanted Samuel to return with him when they went back, as this was very important because of, again, honor. And Samuel has powerful and was highly respected, so Saul wanted to maintain his honor. And Samuel refused, and this is all occurs in 1 Samuel 15, and told Saul that the kingdom of Israel was about to be taken away by the Lord and given to another. So Saul really was aware this was serious. But then he said in 1 Samuel 15.30, he said to Samuel, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the God, the Lord your God. Notice he admits, I have sinned, but he's interested, honor me now. And what this means for Saul before the elders of his people and before Israel. Return with me. So he's self-absorbed, a very selfish interest in this. I've sinned, yeah, but now do this. And then he spiritualizes it, that I may worship the Lord your God. Self-preservation is really at, at the key there for Saul. And that's just like the prodigal, self-preservation. Yes, I have done wrong. Now, honor me. Make me a hired servant. Another reason why we see this is not repentance, is we know that in re repentance, one of the fruits of genuine repentance is humility. And there just doesn't seem to be that same degree of humility here, like an understanding of how he has wronged his father or he was in a position to need forgiveness. It's nothing like the uh, famous Adele song in, her, uh, in Hello, where she writes, there's such a difference between us and a million miles. Hello from the outside. At least I can say that I've tried to tell you I'm sorry for breaking your heart. No, the prodigal doesn't have anything like this. Instead, he's saying, you know, I've done wrong, but now make me an employee. Almost like a business deal. He doesn't seem to show any regret about the way he's insulted or dishonored his father, or no concern about his father's feelings. He doesn't exhibit one pang of conscience about how he spent all the money and lost it. If anything, the young prodigal's actions and words show he's completely self-absorbed. As far as we can tell from the text of the Bible, he goes home just to get a meal and a warm bed, and for that he'll admit he did some wrong. The text, thirdly, does not say that he repented. I mean, if it said he repented, that'd be pretty much ironclad. But it doesn't. In fact, the normal terms for repentance are not used, but the phrase that is used, come to his senses, is not specific or about re uh, usually about repentance. And lastly, like the other two parables, we see that God initiates and finds. Why would this parable be different then and be about how the Son initiates and finds? So instead, we see that he's still in control. He's got a speech. He's got it worked out. He's you know, hoping it all works out, and he returns home. 
So we resume our story in first Sam, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 15, after he has uh, figured out his plan, it says in verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But means something significant. There's a shift. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. But a word of contrast. The story is introducing this twist. Something's going to be contrasted, the way the son was thinking and now what he's going to find. When he was still a great way off, we read, this implies the father was hoping for and anticipating this day. The son is watched for. He's desired. The implication is the son is not yet in the village. In fact, he's quite a ways off. And his father saw him and had compassion. I don't always think we need to give the Greek word, but sometimes they're just fun. I love the Greek word for compassion here. It's splanknizomai. It just sounds great, doesn't it? Splanknizomai. The father had splanknizomai, but the word means to feel deeply or viscerally, to yearn, have compassion, a deep inward affection. The father has an emotional love. The word shouts emotion and deep passion. And he has this compassion and it's obviously undeserved. It's highly connected and related to grace. The father's love comes without a background check. He doesn't know for sure what this son had been doing. He's in a far country. What has he been up to? No background check. He just ran. He runs, which is totally against social norms. In fact, for Middle Eastern men, they rarely ran anywhere. It's not dignified. They had long robes and would kind of almost glide. They'd look like they were gliding as they walked, you know, very importantly. So this is dishonoring. The father goes against all customs. This is an embarrassment, actually. Quite a lot of social cost here for the father to run. And again, understanding honor-shame cultures sheds light on this action. He wants to reach the younger son before the boy reaches the village. Why? To protect him from the outpouring of scorn he would receive as he walked into the village unreconciled with his father. The kasatsa rite that the community could use could banish him if, he wasn't the, if the father wasn't the first one there. So he gets, takes off in a sprint in order to be the first to reach him so he could deflect the abuse that he knew the boy would suffer. The father positions himself in between the son and all the scorn and shame. And he fell on the son's neck and kissed him. In public, at the edge of town, in front of everyone, as a crowd certainly now is gathering. This is unconditional acceptance. He receives the son without one word being said by the son. Grace, undeserved favor. The father is even humbling himself, even though it is the son who should be doing that. So note, with grace, forgiveness precedes repentance. With grace, forgiveness comes before repentance. The sinner is accepted before he says anything or makes his case or pleads for mercy. He doesn't get anything out of his plan. Acceptance is already granted. He need only receive it. This is total amnesty. This is gratuitous, excessive pardon, even extravagant. The father leaves his home, faces public humiliation, shows unbelievable love. Does that sound familiar? 
May I take you to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul is writing about Jesus. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, he coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearances of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Perhaps you're starting to connect the dots. The father in the parable appears to be Jesus himself. But what about those Pharisees that are listening? They were starting to think the story was making sense, and as the son's going to come back and grovel, etc., this is like they can, you know, we were hearing how they might be in agreement. But what about now? Let's listen to him. What? Oh, first, he's running? That's for schoolboys, respect. Men don't run. What a total disgrace. This man is contemptible. And in front of everyone, he's kissing his face, his pig-infested, unclean face. The boy just came from a Gentile land. He was feeding pigs. He is thoroughly unclean. And he's an unworthy son, and he even knows it himself. Just let him say it, you foolish father. And others would be saying, yeah, yes, this is not right. This is plainly wrong. That no good punk does not deserve this. He should be groveling and begging and dragging himself there, pleading for mercy. The community should be trying to kick him and to pull his hair and booing him. He's lucky he's not tarred and feathered. He brought dishonor to everyone. And the father, what a fool. He, he doesn't understand honor at all. This is all shameful. We are shocked. This is truly upsetting. This is more offensive to us than when you were telling us the first part of the parable and the sins of the prodigal son. I hate this story. Yeah, this would all be going on in their thinking as they're interacting with these words. Verse 21 then goes to say, And the son, as the father fell on his neck and kissed him, finally the son can speak. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Here, my friends, is where the son truly repented. He said to him in the midst of this highly emotional and startling moment, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. We see his repentance in his speech because he modifies it. He changes his mind. He makes an adjustment to his planned speech. The first two points are there. I've sinned, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. In fact, reading these two omissions, a famous commentator named Godet says, there is a wild difference between the confession uttered by the prodigal son in verse 21 which is here, from that which he had, had been extracted from him by the extremity of his misery back in verse 18 and 19 when he was in the fields. The latter was a cry of despair, and now his distress is over. It's therefore a cry of repentant love, responsive love. He now makes a significant change. The father's love has overwhelmed him completely overwhelmed him, and he's now there in his arms, broken and defeated. He's unworthy. He's a son that was arriving with some measure of pride or hoped he could do something, and yet the father embraced him and accepted him as he was right there, in front of everyone, demonstrating his love to him, this unbelievable love. Grace 
is the face that love wears when it meets imperfection. I remember reading that somewhere. The sun is personally realizing grace in full in that embrace as the father is hugging him. So here is how we see the son's repentance. He drops the third part of his speech. Make me like one of your hired servants. To say that would be awful in light of the father's obvious love and acceptance of him now. There's no need for it now. He's been stunned by love, stunned by grace, and overwhelmed, and he now accepts what he earlier had rejected to be with the father in his house under the father's terms. After this, the father says, bring me the, the, the sandals and the different things. And sometimes we would want to think, well, the son was going to say the third part, but he was interrupted. And I would contend, no, this is not an interruption. This is a deliberate omission by the son. He made his first two points, which he knew were very true. And now he's accepting this love. He's been persuaded by the Father's love that has overwhelmed him. And he's abandoned the third point of his plan, and he's staying in the embrace of the Father. No demands. No demands. In fact, if he was to replace his third plan, he'd cross out, make me like a hired servant, and he could just say, I am found. Here I am found. In the arms of his father, absorbed by this undeserved love, this is his repentance. He knows he is loved, welcomed, wanted, accepted. It was awesome. The issue all along was the relationship. And now he is found. May I add this point? Unconditional love does not wait for the correct response. It produces it. Grace comes first. Yes, he's saying, I want to be here as a son under your love. Your love for me has spontaneously triggered in me this desire. 2 Corinthians 5.14 reminds us how the love of Christ compels us. It's compelled this son to abandon his plan in the third part of his speech. Grace wins. No pledges, no plans, no performance, just grace. And so he relinquishes control because his plan is irrelevant. So note this. The desire for control fits theologically under the law. And this is going to be really obvious later in future studies. So, but I just want you to realize when we're seeking to have control, we're seeking to manage circumstances and manipulate things. So we're trying, really, what we're doing is being under the law. But the Christian is not under the law. Romans 6 reminds us we are under grace. Relational love and grace. The son has to realize he's the problem. Then he cannot be the solution. And when he sees that, it opens the floodgates. Someone had said, bootstrap Christianity is your greatest problems are outside of you. And the only solution is inside of you. That would be the prodigal here when he's in the fields and he's coming home. But biblical Christianity would say your greatest problem is inside of you and the only solution is outside of you. It's God, his love, his grace. So here in the hug is where the repentance takes place. Repentance is not a human work that gets rewarded. Where's the grace in that? Seriously, is there something you do that triggers God to forgive? 
Repentance is acceptance of God's grace. It's faith or being persuaded of his, of his goodness toward you, though you don't deserve it and you're fully unworthy, and this unworthiness is really realized in the presence of his grace. Repentance, as this story shows, as the other two did, as Jesus is saying, repentance is the acceptance of being found. So this now perfectly matches the repentance taught by Jesus in the first two parables. This parable is about God's love for us as created people. Love seeks volitional free choice, which is something that all created people have. Because this is about love, and if there's going to be love, there has to be volition. And repentance, then, is this change of mind, this change of heart. As Jesus is saying, willingness to be found. And they all, they, this fits together with the lexicon and how Paul presents it and how Jesus is presenting it. Jesus is just emphasizing this relational aspect of it. So grace, grace is supernatural. It's nothing that we invent or manufacture. Grace is divine. It comes from God. It's unconditional. Grace is uncontrollable. Think about it. God makes himself vulnerable, exposed to insult and rejection even by the community as he's running, because he knows it is his love and his grace that alone can really transform sinful hearts. Nothing else will work. You may be fighting and resisting, but remember that it is the love of Jesus that can conquer our resistance and get a hold of our heart. What no one and nothing else could do, God does with his love. And you won't feel like a slave. You'll feel like a son or a daughter. I want you to close your eyes and picture this moment, this embrace. Just, just see this just as if you were there. Just to see this at the edge of town and some people gathering about, developing a crowd. And here's the son and here's the father. And he's just ran and he's embracing him. Look at that son's face. Look at his demeanor. Then notice the father's face. What expressions do you see as he's hugging his son, saying, This is my son. Notice in the face the younger son has this consent, you can almost see it, consent to be loved. And the father says, You're the one that I love. And he's not asking permission to love. And the son says, Okay. So easy and yet so hard. To just say okay, to say yes. Boy, we can be stubborn. We can say no to unconditional love and acceptance. We can fight it. Somehow we think we are so flawed or have done such wrong or are somehow so unworthy that we can't be loved. Unconditional love is harmonious with grace. There are no conditions to be met. So God knows you. He sees you, all of it, and he loves you fully. Total acceptance. Why? hesitate? Why resist? Why fight? Why say no? You can get in the hug and you can know that this is waiting for you even. I want to share a story. I know we're running a little late on time here, but just an ending story here uh, from an author in a book called Furious Love of God. He said, to affirm a person is to see the good in them that they cannot see in themselves and to repeat it in spite of appearances to the contrary. And he shares the story of Larry Mullaney. Back in the late 1960s, he says, I was teaching at a university in Ohio, and there was a student on campus who by society's standards would have been called ugly. 
He was short, extremely obese. He had a terrible case of acne, a bad lisp. His hair was growing like Lancelot's horse in four directions at one time. He bore the uniform of the day, a t-shirt that hadn't been washed since the Spanish-American War. Jeans with a butterfly on the back and, of course, no shoes. In all my days, I've never met anybody with such low esteem. He told me that when he looked in the mirror each morning, he spit at it. Of course, no campus girl would date him. No fraternity wanted him as a pledge. The story I'm about to tell you is what Larry got for Christmas one year. Because Christmas came along for Larry Mullaney, and he found himself back with his parents in Providence, Rhode Island. And Larry's father is a typical lace-curtain Irishman. Now there are lace-curtain Irish and there are shanty Irish. Um, so he goes on and explains that. Well, Larry comes to the dinner table that night at home, and he smells like a belly goat. And they usually have their usual quarrels and recollections, and thus begins a typical vacation in the Mullaney household. Several days later, Larry tells his father that he's got to get back to school the next day. What time, son? Six o'clock. Well, I'll ride the bus with you, the father says. The next morning, the father and son ride the bus in silence. They get off the bus as Larry has to catch a second one to get to the airport. And directly across the street are six men standing under an awning, all men who work in the same textile factory as Larry's father. And they begin making loud and degrading remarks like, <laughs> Oink, oink, look at that fat pig. I tell you, if that fat pig was my kid, I'd hide him in the basement. I'd be so embarrassed. Another said, I wouldn't. If that slob was my kid, he'd be out the door so fast he wouldn't know if he was on, on foot or horseback. Hey, pig, give us your best oink. The brutal salvos continued. And then Larry Mullaney told me that in that moment, for the first time in his life, his father reached out and embraced him, kissed him, and said, Larry, if your mother and I lived to be 200 years old, I would not be long enough to thank God for the gift he gave to us in you. I am so proud that you're my son. It would be hard to describe in words the transformation that took place in Larry Mullaney, but I'll try. He came back to school and remained a hippie, but he cleaned up the best he could. Miracle of miracles, Larry began dating a girl, and to top it off, he became the president of one of the fraternities. By the way, he was the first student in the history of our university to graduate with a 4.2 grade point average. He was brilliant. Larry came to my office one day and said, tell me about this man, Jesus. For the next six weeks and half hour increments, I shared with Larry what the Holy Spirit had revealed to me about Jesus. And at the end of those six weeks, Larry said, okay. He said, yes. It was on a day long ago during a Christmas vacation, standing at a bus stop, when this lace-curtain Irish father healed him. Yes, his father healed him. His father had the guts to get out of the foxhole and choose the high road of blessing in the face of cursing and taunts. His father looked deeply into his son's eyes, saw the good in Larry Mullaney that Larry couldn't see for himself, affirmed him with a furious love, and changed the whole direction of his son's life. And there you see the picture of God's amazing grace-oriented love. <clears throat> he created you. He knows you. He knows me. And he wants us to respond to him. This is how repentance works. Thinking of Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? What leads us to repentance? The goodness of God. It draws us in and we're found. We say yes. We put our faith in him. We change our mind. 
And God wants to convince us and persuade us to do just that. Shall we pray? Father, we do come and we thank you. Thank you for this marvelous incident of your grace being poured out on an undeserving son. Thank you, Father, that it's a picture of your grace being poured out on an undeserving humanity. And that if we would just see how you love us, how you demonstrated that through the death of your son, how you have provided the means for our sins to be cleansed and washed and to be taken away, and that Christ has resurrected and you are now offering life, you want to affirm and us as, as your son or your daughter, if we would just believe, if we would put our faith in Jesus Christ, if we would say yes, if we would respond by faith, change our mind, and realize that we are the ones that you love. So I pray that this would be clear in our thinking, that this is even the same application in the Christian life if we've been astray or fighting you. It's the exact same thing. May we just realize you are meeting us with your love. We would want to abide in that. And so teach us these things. We thank you for this story. We know we're taking our time through it. We just pray that each time we study it, it would just come alive. And so we ask you to work to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for listening. We are going slowly. We're going to have to have another part or two to the story for this younger son. We'll continue with the older and the father. There's many rich applications and truths to draw out. And so, feel free to email us if you'd like to see the copy uh, or have a copy of the questions devotion and discussion questions at coolhandgrace at gmail.com and feel free to give us ratings on your app or your platform these things are really helpful for podcasts so we would appreciate that too until next time remember where the spirit of God is there is always hope Thank you.